welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I know that you heard an excellent sermon last Sunday from Austin Dameron. And that song basically encapsulates that message about what Jesus has done for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I want to pick right up from there. I uh, was able to watch uh, the 930 service online, or actually maybe in the 8 o'clock. California is on their own time zone out there and in the twilight zone. And uh, I'm not sure what time it was when I watched, but I know I was watching And he did an excellent job uh, preaching God's Word. Now, you'll notice the very first word, and I'll talk to you about it in just a second, but verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain." A young man became, right out of seminary, became a pastor in West Texas. Now, those of us who've lived out here for a while know it can get dry. It was a time of drought, and the pastor was in a small Baptist church in a small town in West Texas, and he went out to visit one of his members who happened to be a farmer. And they were talking about different things, and the farmer looked to the southwest, and he said, those are some serious clouds right there. And the young man, wanting to show off his brilliance, said, well, those are probably cirrus clouds. No, actually, they're probably cumulus clouds. And the farmer looked at him and said, son, there's not but two kinds of clouds, them that are serious and them that ain't. (laughs) There are only two kinds of Christians. You're either serious about it or you're not. Now, it's interesting that we live our life with expectations of other people. Parents have expectations of their children. Spouses have expectations of each other. Employers, employees have expectations of one another in the place of employment. At churches, people have expectations of a pastor. Pastors have expectations of people. But if you think about it, the expectations that we hold over one another are really nothing more than us holding people to our standards. We want them to act like we would act. Or if we hold a standard, we want them to have that same standard. Well, Paul is talking about, to the Philippians, he's talking about joy in the Christian life and living out your faith, not just being silent, but but actually he calls us stars in this passage, shining like a star. But I, I, I call it living from the inside out. And that's, that's what Paul would have called it, 
Living what you have on the inside, coming out in the way that you live every day. Now, it begins, I begin by calling it living inside out in your actions. You'll notice the word therefore. That goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Then it moves up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when it talks about all that we have in Christ and how we're to live that out. And then he gives the example in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, of all that Jesus did who came for us. And then he says, therefore, what are you supposed to do? Well, living inside in our actions, I see two things here. First of all, we're to be obedient or compliant. If you'll notice, he said, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. You have obeyed. And then he says, work out your salvation. Charles Spurgeon says that our faith, the essence of our faith, is found in the prepositions. You'll notice he didn't say, work for your salvation. He said, work out your salvation. Now, we know he's not talking to lost people because he's always used the, already used the term beloved and brethren many times. He's talking to Christians, and he's saying, work out your salvation. Now, if there was ever a passage that has really been misinterpreted through the years, this is it. Because you ask the common person, what do you think it takes to get a person into heaven? What's the number one answer for somebody who doesn't know the answer is Jesus? Live a good life. It's amazing how many people will come into church every week thinking, I'm here so that I can earn a little more credit to go to heaven. We have people that come on Christmas and Easter only, the CEOs, Christmas, Easter only. Now, why do you think they come? Now, I'm not judging them, and I'm grateful that they come. I am. I probably shouldn't even have said that. Just, just forget that. Strike that from the record. The jury will not hold this. But why do people do that? They come because they think, well, you know, I, I want God to remember my name and know whose side I'm on, and just in case there is something to this. Paul said, you work out your salvation. Because we know we don't work for our salvation. You did not do one blessed thing to save yourself. Amen. For by grace, God's grace, are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, Paul's talking to Christians. Now, the word work out was a word used for working. Sometimes it was worse for, used for working a mine. God puts the ore or the precious gems in the ground, and man works it out. Sometimes it was used for working a field, to work a field to get the greatest harvest out of it. But what I want you to know is that when you were saved... God put his spirit in you, and now you're allowing that to work out in your life. It's not legalism. Legalism is when you make a bunch of rules and regulations, and then you condemn anybody that doesn't keep them, and so forth. It's not about being religious. It's about allowing 
the salvation that God has given you and me to come out in our life. Notice he says to work your own salvation. Wouldn't it be much easier to work out someone else's salvation? (laughs) Yeah, I'd a lot rather tell somebody else what to do than to focus on myself. With fear and trembling, the word fear does not mean you grovel before God like a slave would before a master. It means to reverence God, and the trembling comes into play when you and I realize that we are so frail, we are so unpredictable, that to live for the Lord, we've, we've also got to depend upon Him because we're not going to do it on our own. So that leads to the second part of this would be we're controlled in our actions because in verse 13 it says, it is God who works in you. If I had a flashlight, it's, I, you have a lot of flashlights. I have a lot of flashlights. They are useful, but they're worthless if there's no batteries in them or they're not charged. The term that God uses, that Paul uses here for God working in you is the word energon, energy. He energizes us to live for him. That's where the power comes from. He works in you. Now, notice he didn't say God works for you. I believe he does, but that's not what he's saying here. Or God works with you. Or God works through you. It's God works in you to give you the strength and the energy to do what God wants you to do. So, first of all, you're saved. You give your life to Christ. It begins to show in your actions. Paul said, you're even obeying the Lord when I'm not there. I, I can tell you from experience that, that uh, there have been times when people have gathered and they're doing something, and I walk up and everything changes. I think sometimes people believe that I actually turn you in to the Lord. I'm I'm God's inspector. So-and-so on this date was doing this. Listen, God already knows what you're doing. But Paul is saying, even when I'm not there, you are obeying the Lord. And you know what? It doesn't matter if somebody's watching or not. You need to obey the Lord. Well, not only do you live inside out in your actions, but you also live inside out in your attitude. This verse deals with attitude, where verse 12 deals with action. There's two words here I want you to see in verse 13. Excuse me, verse uh, 14, I should say, not 12. The first two verses, 12 and 13, deal with outside actions. This one deals with attitude. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Complaining. NIV says grumbling. Do you know what an onomatopoeia is? I can't spell it, but I can say it. It's when a word is spelled or sounds like its meaning, like thud. T-H-U-D. It sounds like it's spelled. it, Or buzz. Well, in the Greek, this word is an onomatopoeia because it sounds like what it means. Here's how you say it. Gone goose moan. Gone goose moan. Mumbling. Murmuring. 
It is an undertone of murmuring. It's what you say to yourself when you don't like something. You're not speaking it out loud. So the first word is what you say to yourself. It's, it's the same thing as when you corrected your children and they were walking off and you said, what did you say? That's a gone goof moan right there. You and I do that a lot. I do it when I drive. I'm trying to get over it. Since the beginning of time, there have been murmurings and undertones like this. When Moses was leading the children of Israel out of the promised land, they were complaining against him all the time. Can't you just hear them? If I have to eat manna one more time, or if I have to walk across the desert one more time, I'm going back to Egypt. God kept them out of the promised land. When Jesus was here on the earth, he had dinner with a, a, a notorious sinner. And the, and the Pharisees stood out condemning him. How could he go into the house of a sinner? What, who does he think he is? He claims to be the Messiah. Murmur, 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 murmur. Complain, 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 complain. Your life should not be characterized by complaining. When God asks you to do something, do you gripe about it? I got amused at an old lady a little old lady who walked into a department store one day, and as soon as she walked through the door, a band began to play. A man walked up to her, pinned a flower on her dress. They handed her $1,000. There were TV cameras there. One of the, and, and it turned out that she was the one millionth customer that had come through that door. One of the reporters walked up to her and said, tell me, just what did you come in here for today? She hesitated a little bit and she said, well, I was on my way to the complaint department. <laughs> the Word of God says don't do that. It's not something that a spirit-filled Christian is going to do. When you start complaining to you, when you start complaining all the time, people don't want to hear that. Don't let people complain to you all the time. You wouldn't let somebody walk into your house and dump garbage on the floor of your living room, but don't let them dump garbage in your ear. In fact, Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, think on these things. Don't be a complainer. One little boy named his dog Uncle Joe. And they said, why did you name your dog Uncle Joe? He says, because he's just like that uncle of mine. He growls at everything he eats and wants to fight everyone he sees. <laughs> That's not a child of God. But I, I want to tell you, though, the religious people are that way. The other word is what you say to others. Disputing, arguing is the NIV translation. The word is dialogismos. We get our word dialogue, but here this word means to create doubts or questions or even suspicion by your conversation. What you say to others revealing your bad attitude, it's what murmuring turns into, turns into verbal battles. Perfect place for that is a church business meeting. Fortunately, that doesn't happen here anymore, but it has. Besides, if you're murmuring and complaining, do you really think your heart's in tune with the Lord? I don't think so. Max, Max Aclato, in one of his books, uh, Just Like Jesus, he tells of a man who came home one day and immediately his wife started complaining, which led to an intense argument. And about arriving at 6.30 in the evening, he spent an hour trying to make things right. 
finally in desperation, he said, can we start over? Can I go out the door and come back in and let's start over? And she said, okay. So she, he goes out, he comes back in, and she says, it's 730 at night, and you're just now getting home. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a complaint box in heaven because there's some people who aren't happy unless they're complaining. Listen, he's saying your attitude, it shows. It shows in your actions. It shows in the way that you talk to, about what God wants you to do and it also shows in the way that you talk to other people. But there's a third thing, and we're living inside out is in your appearance, in verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Blameless means unmixed, unadulterated, undiluted. A jeweler in that day, if he said this gold is blameless, he would be telling you it's of the highest quality. It's not diluted down. Paul said, your life is to be blameless. It speaks of our reputation. Christians project a certain image to the non-Christian world. Whether you like it or not, you have a reputation. And whether you like it or not, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, people are going to be watching you. A great example of a blameless man is Daniel, who was captured by the Babylonians, was serving in a pagan government, and he had some enemies that were jealous of him that were trying to find a way to get rid of Daniel. And listen to what they said after all that they looked for in Daniel 6.5. It says, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. <laughs> so they made it illegal to pray. To be blameless means that you're not giving people an opportunity to criticize Christianity. People won't say, well, I thought he or she was a Christian, or how could they do that if they are a Christian? Now, I'm not saying anybody's perfect, but believe it or not, we give by our living the reputation for Christians. That's why so many people are turned off when they hear about the church or Christians because so many people who claim to be Christians have not lived out the love of Christ. Religious people, they're the meanest people on earth. Religious people will kill you in the name of their God. Religious people make a set of rules and regulations, and if you don't follow them by cracker, you're going to hell. But Christians have the love of God in their life and grace and life. And he's saying, you need to live in such a way that even when you're surrounded by evil, you're not participating in it. You're not condemning anybody. You're not looking down your nose at them, but you're not participating in it. To be blameless, don't give them a reason to criticize your following Jesus. And then the word harmless means without guile. It refers to our character. Blameless speaks of the outside when people see. Harmless speaks of the inside. The word focuses on inward moral integrity. And those two words together show that you are faultless. The word in verse 15, 
without fault, pure, above reproach. It's the summary of those other two words that come together. It means without blemish. And listen to this. You're going to love this. The Greek word is amoma, A-M-O-M-A. Anytime that you have the A or the alpha in front of a word, it negates that word. Now stay with me. So momus, M-O-M-U-S, was a Greek mythological god who was the God that didn't do anything himself. He just found fault with everyone and everybody else and everything they did. So if you were a person that griped and complained, people would call you Moma. Paul said, you're to be Ah Moma, the opposite of that. Because you live in a crooked, verse 15, scolios. You know what scoliosis is? It's a medical term for the curvature of the spine. Instead of it being straight, it will be curved. And there are people who have scoliosis. Paul is saying you don't live in a straight world. Have you ever noticed how warped our world is? Let me give you some examples. The things we call music today. Paint yourself blue and beat on a trash can, they'll call it music. Now, I like the Blue Man Group. Don't misunderstand me. But when I beat on a trash can at home, my mother called it racket. <laughs> Art. Drunk monkey throws paint on a canvas, they call it art. Literature, you write down any perverted sexual details, they call it literature. Marriage, an attempt to legitimize anything but what God calls marriage. The concept of virtue is warped. The supreme virtue in our culture is tolerance. It's not character. The concept of truth is warped. There's no absolute standard of truth. Your opinion, your feelings can be truth to you. We live in a warped world. And Paul is saying, if there's ever a place for people to see the truth and for you to be blameless, it's in this crooked, warped world that you live in. And what are you supposed to do? He says you're to shine. It's... Shine refers to appearing. It doesn't mean you have to shout. It doesn't mean you have to scream or make a scene. Just shine. The world's so warped that when you live for Christ, people are going to notice. You don't have to be hateful about it. You don't have to tell people they're wrong. You just live what Jesus wants you to live and be obedient to his word. And I promise you, you're going to shine. And then he calls us lights, luminaries. Actually, the word is star. Stars are light-giving bodies. The nearest star we have is the sun. We are shining as stars in a dark world. In fact, how do you, when can you see the stars the best? The darker it is. 
You can't really see them in town because there's so much light from the city. But when you go outside the city and you get out there where it's really dark and it's not a full moon, (laughs) they shine brightly, don't they? Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, where did we get the idea that our light is this little light of mine? Now, I understand teaching that to children, but I want to tell you something. Nowhere in the Scripture are we told that we have a little light. We are luminaries. We are stars. We are people that will stand for truth. We will love people. We will not be hateful. But when you point others to the Lord, you you do that by Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once in darkness, but now you're in light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What a contrast to darkness. Listen, when you leave this place, you've got four ways to relate to the world. And you're going to do one of these. First of all, you can isolate yourself and just spend time in your holy huddles all the time. We have had a lot of holy huddles. There's nothing wrong with Bible studies. Or you can indulge and become just like the world and nobody knows you're a believer. Keep it quiet, act like them, live like them, talk like them, nobody will know. Or you can incinerate lost people with your attitude and with your actions. You can just turn them off by telling them how sorry they are and how far away from God they are and so forth. Listen, they act like lost people. Amen? One thing I've noticed, lost people act lost. (laughs) You can't expect a lost person to act like a Christian. The fourth way is to illuminate the darkness by shining and sharing Jesus and the Word of God with people in a loving way. Listen, except for the grace of God, you would be one of those people in darkness. In fact, we all were in darkness at one time until we came to know Jesus. Now, the first three responses, isolation, indulging like the world, and incinerating lost people, those lead to the loss of our witness. But when the illumination can lead to communication, You see, lights are valuable only when they dispel the darkness. Some commentators actually believe that Paul was using the metaphor of a lighthouse. You know, how lights shine through the fog. So you live inside out in your actions, your attitude, and the way you live among the people and their appearance. But there's one other thing. Don't forget this one. It's in your assignment Paul says, holding fast the word of life. Now, I know it's the last blank you filled in, but stay with me. Don't start getting ready to leave. You're not going to leave till two. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. I'm just kidding, too. I'm not saying till two. You can, but I'm not. He says, as you hold forth the word of life, that means two things. It means offering something, and then it also means to hold out, to persevere, to stay with it. You hold forth the light. You hold forth salvation. People need to be saved. Christians, not only to have the moral character which makes them shine as lights, but they're to extend forth the message of Christ to a dying world. 
I know we're not perfect, but don't let that stop from sharing. One little girl heard the, the Sunday school teacher say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. She came home from Sunday school. And she said, Mom, what does that mean? Her mom said, well, it means that when you are good and kind and thoughtful and obedient, you're letting Christ shine in your life before all who know you. Okay. Well, the next Sunday, wouldn't you know, that little girl gets in some kind of skirmish with another kid in the classroom, so much so that it created a ruckus, and the teachers had to send for her mother to come down there and talk to her. Her mother was concerned. When she got to the classroom, she said, Sweetie, don't you remember about letting your light shine for the Lord before others? She said, Mom, I have blowed myself out. <laughs> there are going to be times when you blow yourself out, but I don't mean you lose your salvation. But, but for the most part, your life ought to be characterized by shining as light. August the 31st, 1988. The Delta flight... 1141 took off from DFW. The 727 accelerated down the runway and rotated, but because the front leading edge slats and the flaps were not correctly deployed, it lumbered in the air for a few moments before it twisted and fell to the earth and ignited. There were 108 passengers on board, and miraculously, only 14 were killed. Now, I know that's still bad. One of those 14 victims was Scott Owen. Scott was on a business trip, and he had just recently married a young lady from Odessa. They were living in Dallas, and now her husband's been killed. This young widow had to deal with her grief as best she could. She kept repeating, why God? And a couple of weeks after she had to bury her husband, there was a knock on her door, and she opened the door to find a stranger who said, you don't know me, but on the day of the plane crash, I was seated next to Scott. And as we were sitting there at the jetway and the passengers were boarding, I noticed he was reading a book, and I just simply asked him what it was, and it was a Christian book, and he began to tell me about his faith in Jesus. And even as they pushed the jet away from the jetway, he talked to me about how to become a Christian. And as we taxied out and waited for takeoff, he began to share with me the difference that Jesus had made in his life and how one of the greatest things Jesus had given him was a good wife. And even as we were accelerating down the runway, he was talking to me about his faith in Christ. And the man said, I, I don't know why he died and I survived, but I want you to know that Scott didn't die in vain because I've accepted Jesus Christ and now I am a believer. You see, Scott let his light shine no matter where he was, and God used it. There may be somebody living close to you who's in darkness. Maybe a neighbor, could be a schoolmate, co-worker, family member. They're lost. Folks, I, I believe in a literal hell. I don't try to scare people with it, but I believe it's true because Jesus talked about it more than he talked about heaven. And I don't want anybody going there. And I've been mad at some people and didn't like some people, 
but never enough that I hope that that's where they would wind up for eternity. And we need to understand that just because somebody's nice, just because somebody is generous and good, they're still sinners separated by their, because of their sin from God. And they need Jesus. Paul said, you hold forth that I may rejoice on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor. Those words talk about working to the point of exhaustion. It describes the rigors of athletic training. And he said, I don't want, I want to know that my life was not wasted. Let me tell you something. You're here for a reason. You're on this earth for a reason. Your mom and dad may have said you were a mistake. You were just unplanned. You're not a mistake. God has purpose for you. And there are some people that need the light that you have to shine. One little girl sitting in church heard the pastor preach on this very passage. She looked up at her mom and said, Mom, how can you work it out if it's never gotten in? And I want you to know, until you know Jesus, you have no clue what I'm talking about. It's not being religious. It's not being good. It's being saved. It's being rescued. It's being redeemed. It's being brought to life through Jesus Christ. He said, I've come to give you life. And if you don't know him, you don't have to join our church to know him. But I do know the Holy Spirit is probably speaking to your heart right now. Probably saying something. You're probably thinking, how did he know where I was? I don't know. The Holy Spirit does. You ask God to forgive you. The amazing thing is, God wants to forgive you. You ever gone to somebody, you were going to ask for their forgiveness, and you wondered if they were going to do it? I can promise you, God's going to. He's going to forgive you because you also believe that Jesus died for your sin, and God put your sin on him, and he died and he rose again. And you place your faith in Jesus. And when you do, trust. Jesus, I trust you. If you're not the way, I'm not going. I'm staking my life on my eternity. My eternity is staked on the fact that I believe Jesus is the only way to be saved. And when you place your faith and trust in him, you go from here to here. 14 inches, 12 inches, 16, I don't know, depending on how tall you are. Fact is, you go from here to here. I trust you. God immerses you in the righteousness of Jesus and looks at you as if you've never sinned. Some of you need to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? For those who've never received Christ, now's your time. Lord, I pray for those even now who need to turn from their sin and come to you, asking you to forgive them and trusting Jesus, believing in their heart. I pray for those, Lord, who need a church. I lift up those who need to be baptized. But, Lord, most of all, I lift up those in this room who claim the name of Jesus, who need to 
shine up the lens of our life and let the light shine. Because of the sin in our life, people don't see you in our life. So we're going to go to 1 John 1, 9, and Lord, we're going to confess our sin to you and ask you to forgive us. And then you tell us you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to shine, Lord. Help us to be people who live from the inside out. And I pray for those that need to come. They need to give their life to Christ. They want to be a member here. They need to be baptized. Or maybe they just need someone to pray with them. I pray that they will come even now. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. And enjoy today's message. 